Staying at a stranger's house is inherently scary. So can it be to rent out your own home. Most guests are people like us, and most hosts are people we can trust. But what happens when they aren't? What happens when things seem, well, off? Welcome to our ScareBnB podcast series. Every episode is a different tension building book. And every book features a different B&B listing location as its setting. In this episode, written and narrated by Beth Salmon, you'll be taken to Burbank, California. Here, a finalist in a screenwriting competition wins a B&B stay at a posh apartment complex, only to discover that a psycho movie buff has plotted to make her the next victim of his home horror show. How this writer's story ends is a matter of life and death but she'll have to call on all her powers of creativity if she's to rewrite the movie ending he has planned. Subscribe to our podcast to be notified when a new Scarabimbi episode has been added, and please feel free to leave a comment, especially a recommendation about a listing you'd like us to write about. Thanks for joining the Garage Girls who produce this series. We know you'll be dying to check out our property rentals. Here's hoping you survive your stay. Chapter 1 It's funny how life has a way of bringing you into the lion's den, or as we screenwriters call it, the innermost cave, the place where you have to face what frightens you most, that is, if you want to seize the reward, the elixir. In every single blockbuster movie, it's the same, you know. Your hero must go into the belly of the beast to defeat her demon. For me, it was my life I was fighting for. I guess my cave was a crappy little apartment in Burbank that someone had taken a whole lot of time to make soundproof with foam tiles and thick carpeting. But hold up. I'm getting ahead of myself with the story. We need to start at the beginning. The fade in. I like to say my nightmare really began in the form of a beautiful dream. And that was that one day... I'd move out to Hollywood and finally sell my screenplay. I can't tell you how many odd, menial jobs I've worked to support myself while I wrote my screenplays, with the belief that one day it would all be worth it. How many toilets did I clean? How many men did I let grab my ass as I shuttled drinks on a tray for the hope of bigger tips? How many poorly behaved dogs have I walked, sometimes five at a time, to make ends meet while I chased down a dream that always seemed just a little bit out of reach. And the more menial my jobs, the harsher the criticisms, the nastier the naysaying and outright disapprovals and disparagements I endured about my less-than-fruitful career choice from well-meaning friends and family, not the least of whom was my very own mother. Ironic that her own career choice was really to avoid choosing one altogether and make a living by marrying a long string of fairly well-off jerks instead. Honey, I'm just trying to save you from making a mistake, she'd say. I don't want to see you wake up one day with nothing to show for it or fall back on. I knew she meant well, but her lack of faith only fueled me more. I don't want to blame her for anything now, but I probably would have been a little bit more cautiously skeptical if I wasn't trying so hard to prove her wrong. You better believe she was the first one I called when I received my congratulations email announcing that my horror script, one I called Chuman, 
was a top five finalist in the A-Lister's screenwriting competition. Imagine how I felt that day. To say over the moon was a gross understatement. Wouldn't it be better to be the number one finalist? My mom asked. But that's just it. I could win the top prize, which promises I'll get an agent and eventually sell my script. I said with my heart bubbling over with so much elation that even her doubting couldn't squelch it. They're inviting me out to Hollywood for the finals, Ma. It's all expenses paid. She was impressed by that, the last part, the all expenses paid part. But it wasn't completely accurate. I did have to pay my airfare, which wasn't cheap coming from Buffalo, and my rental car, but my weekend hotel accommodation was covered. Well, it wasn't actually a luxury hotel, but a two-bedroom apartment, a swanky B&B in Burbank from the Picks, all booked online by the contest organizers. I didn't tell her that part, though. At the time I'd called, I could tell she was distracted with the details of planning her fourth honeymoon with a man named Clive, which apparently was affecting her ability to truly understand the incredible ramifications of my screenplay career being launched like a rocket. I took a screenshot of my contest email. Congratulations, Catherine. Your amazing script, Schumann, has been selected as a top five finalist. Each year, our competition steadily grows in both talent and submissions. Our readers have the unenviable task of advancing only 0.001% of the thousands of scripts submitted. And yours made the cut. Get ready for a trip to Hollywood. Your big break is here. It's funny how you look back on things only later and say, what was I thinking? How could I have fallen so easily for that? But I wasn't thinking. Or I should say, the only thing I was thinking was that this was something I had wanted for as long as I could remember, and it was happening. There would have been nothing that could have stopped me from going to Hollywood to try for that grand prize. Nothing. Not even my pathetic life savings, which incidentally just covered the cost of my airfare to Los Angeles. My credit card covered my car. But I didn't hesitate once. The only time I did start to have any reservations, that is, a sinking feeling that started in the pit of my stomach and felt like the sensation of being on a roller coaster, the part of the ride where you're climbing, clicking your way up the highest descent, and you have absolutely no idea what's on the other side of that apex because all you can see is sky. That's how I felt when I rolled down the window in my tiny rental economy car and punched the passcode I'd received from the contest organizers into the security box outside the grand metal gates of the Sequoia Studios complex. A luxurious but vintage apartment village situated in the backyard of the major studios, the Sequoia was known as a place where actors, screenwriters, and all types of entertainment executives lived when they were recently relocated to or just visiting L.A. for filming, meetings, and whatnot. At least that's what I had read online. I was excited and eager to find my apartment rental and have a stroll around the place, but something kept gnawing at my insides. As the impressive gates slid electronically to the right and I drove forward past them to a large flat pad of a parking lot that overlooked the San Fernando Valley, I couldn't shake that certain feeling, which I only know now was good old-fashioned intuition. As I look back on my story like a movie, there were a few things that seemed to foreshadow the trouble that lie in wait. At dusk, when the sun was setting well past its golden time, 
I could hear a coyote behind me way off in the distant hills, killing what sounded like a rabbit. That was ominous. As were the whiny, high-pitched, screaming sounds of all of the identical electronic cars that busily zipped in and around that parking lot, like Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Seeing other people should have made me feel safe, but that sound made my skin crawl. What really triggered me the most as I rolled my luggage to my apartment rental front door, which, by the way, had a lovely view of the pool, was realizing that the Sequoia Studios didn't have any sequoias, not a one. They were pine and palm trees, and there weren't that many. I don't know what I expected, and it is kind of funny that it bothered me so much, but I think it was my subconscious trying to knock hard on my brain with its warning through metaphor. Things aren't what they seem here. It was literally yelling in its silent way. So you better wake up and pay attention. Too bad I decoded that message. About five minutes too late. Chapter 2 While I have never been able to describe to the police investigators what happened five minutes later with any detail, I did have plenty of information about things I noticed about the apartment and the pool area nearby just before everything went down badly. That is... For me. I remembered a long-haired, skinny rocker type and his girlfriend laying on lounge chairs, petting a black and white tabby on the girl's lap. They were also smoking the biggest, fattest joint I'd ever seen. And then there was a younger, good-looking guy wearing glasses, but not the nerdy glasses, cool ones, walking down the sidewalk that wove in and out of the complex, connecting the buildings on each side of the pool. He was carrying a messenger bag, but was otherwise completely nondescript. He's probably a writer, I thought to myself at the time, and by the way he was crossing and recrossing his steps, he was either new to the complex as I was, or he was visiting someone. He obviously didn't know where he was going. When I used my key card on my apartment door, I was pretty blown away. With a bright white kitchen, marble countertops, an orange mid-century modern couch, and mirrored side tables, I thought I'd walk straight into a West Elm catalog. There were two bedrooms, two bathrooms, and laundry in the unit. I can dig this, I thought to myself. It was much fancier than my own apartment back home, and I was impressed. It immediately stirred in me a desire to call my mom and check in. She's not going to believe how awesome this place is, I thought. So I FaceTimed her. Having just gotten married a week ago, she and Clive were now in Florida and in the middle of boarding a giant cruise ship, the name of which was the Casablanca. I saw its big black letters on the hull just behind her head when she accepted my video chat. Ma, I made it, I yelled. I'm just checking in. Oh, thank goodness, she shouted back. I was worried. Everything's okay, I replied, trying to get some good angles of my apartment to fit into the phone's camera view. This place is totally amazing. I mean, really amazing. Five star. Wow, she said. I can tell. Are you right by the pool? Oh, you can see that, I said, smiling, knowing she could because I made sure to angle my phone in that direction. Is it bad that it gave me a little bit of pleasure to show off my contest prize? this cool pad to my mom 
and even though she was distracted yet again, I could tell she was possibly more impressed than even I was. I'm so proud of you, honey, she said, nearly screaming with excitement. But maybe that's because there was a Marachi band nearby, and someone just blew the cork off of a bottle of champagne, probably Clive. Thanks, Ma, I answered, feeling a little bit of the ominous cloud I was under earlier dissipate. I won't be able to communicate on the ship for a little bit. Will you call me on Monday and tell me how it all worked out? Of course, I shouted over the increasingly loud noise of her dock ship, which I could see was filling with even more passengers. And then our call just dropped. My mom was gone, and I was alone again in the apartment. Or so I thought. I really don't remember anything else. The cops asked me about the hand towel doused in chloroform that he put over my face, but I have absolutely no memory of that. I just remember a sea of blackness that drew me deeper into its slumbering depths like a two-ton blanket. If I could have stayed sleeping, I would have preferred it, because where I found myself when I awoke was more frightening than anything I could have imagined for any of my horror scripts. Chapter 3 I didn't wake up from my chloroform-induced slumber until about two hours later. And I didn't know it was two hours later. I had no way of knowing. This is all information I was only able to piece together later. At this point, I wasn't concerned about how much time had lapsed as much as I was about the gag in my mouth, the mask over my eyes, and how my hands were locked up in some sort of contraption that prevented me from pulling any of it off my face. In fact, my entire body seemed to be bound up in what seemed like a very circuitous manner. My wrists and ankles were held together with leather cuffs and chains, which greatly restricted my ability to use my hands or even walk. Unable to see or speak or move very well, the only ability that offered any insight into what had happened to me was my sense of hearing. You've been sleeping for a while on the bed, said a strange man's voice, which I'd never heard before in my life. You are safe. You haven't been hurt in any way. Safe, I thought to myself, completely incredulous. Bound and gagged, I was anything but safe. Confused, shocked, horrified. Those were words that could describe how I was feeling. And then came the panic rising up. I tried to scream with everything I had. And even though I was gagged, I can tell you I was plenty loud. But the voice didn't speak again for a long moment. He seemed unconcerned with my attempt to call out for help. I should tell you that the walls are soundproof, so even if I take off the gag, no one will hear you, he said. Let's just say I've tested it many times. If you promise to behave yourself, I'll take off the blindfold, he said plainly. Do you think you can behave? I was still confused, but not so dumb to see my opportunity to figure out what was going on, and I had to see for myself. I nodded my head vigorously in the affirmative, and just like that, I felt a man's hand slip off what I soon could see with my own eyes to be a black sleeping mask. There, he said. Isn't that better? I meekly nodded, but I can tell you it wasn't better. In many ways, it was far worse. 
First, I saw a fairly tall man, balding with a stubby chin, staring back at me. He was wearing a button-down shirt, not tucked in, a pair of jeans and work boots. His attire was clearly blue-collar, so maybe he was a maintenance guy, maybe one working right at the complex. But when I was blindfolded, I had imagined him looking much differently. His voice and manner seemed better educated somehow, highbrow, even though his bedroom was fairly unkempt. Second, I saw what I was wearing, a ridiculous leathery suit with zippers, studs, and chains. He had me in some weird bondage contraption. I had no memory of getting into this outfit, and the thought of this weirdo dressing me up in it made my skin crawl. That would be something to ponder another time, but definitely not now. Right then, all of my brain power was required to work on one problem and one alone, how to get out of here alive. Let's get one thing out of the way, he said with a tone of gravity that sent a shudder up my spine. You're not getting out of here. I've taken every precaution, so don't even waste your time. And with that line, he turned and pointed to a big movie poster behind me, the only decor in the entire room. A little too apt it was for an 80s movie with Kevin Cosner called No Way Out. While I stood blank-faced and in shock, he briefly went on to explain how the contraption, a small box attached to the ceiling, worked. Inside was the motor of a garage door opener, but instead of being attached to a door, it was hooked to my harness with a thin but sturdy metal wire. And by one click of his remote, which he assured me he carried in his pocket at all times, he could have me yanked upwards toward the ceiling. He also told me not to bother looking for my phone admitting that he'd dropped it off with my car somewhere far away so that if anyone went to track it, they'd never come close to my actual location. This is all about trust, he said. If I can trust you, I'll give you more privileges. But if you prove unworthy of that trust, well, then. Why are you doing this? I asked, seriously wanting to know, but never really expecting he would answer. And I was right. He didn't. Please, I begged in a cracking, desperate voice that sounded nothing like myself. Let me go. I could sense he was enjoying this part a little too much, and I'll tell you now that this one realization scared me more than anything else. Being a writer, I know a few interesting things about psychopaths, because I spent far too much time researching them for my stories. And well, if I had to make a wager, I'd bet this guy was one, full-blown. The man turned toward the door as if to go and let out a long sigh. You can reach the facilities, I mean the bathroom, on your wire. And there's a plastic cup in there for water. You should have what you need until I get back later. Later, I asked as a question, not really sure I wanted to know the answer. I'll return in an hour for our date, he said, turning back toward me. I'm making you dinner. He winked one eye, and then I watched him walk out. When I heard a second door slam shut, I collapsed into a heap on the floor, overcome with a feeling I can tell you is something I've never experienced before. Sheer and absolute terror. Chapter 4 Remember the belly of the beast, the innermost cave I mentioned at the beginning of the story? Well, this was it. 
I was in it. Some crazy guy's apartment in Burbank. Nothing as nice as the one I was in earlier. I suspected I was still in the Sequoia complex, but I honestly had no idea where. Because the windows and walls were all covered with foam and cardboard, I couldn't see outside or hear anything that might help to elucidate me as to my exact whereabouts either. There is one thing I could detect from the outside world. Smell. And when the man left, he must have opened the outside door just enough to let it waft on in. It was chlorine, the exact same odor I smelled earlier by the complex pool. And by the intensity of it, I had a good feeling that I was not only in an apartment unit near the same swimming pool, but I was probably in much closer proximity to the hot tub, so the south side. But as quickly as this revelation gave me a jolt of hope, the terrible reality of my dilemma came crashing in on me again. Even though he had warned me not to waste my time thinking about my escape, that's all I could do. I yelled my bloody head off, wasting the first 15 minutes of my time alone before he said he'd return. I yelled until my voice was hoarse. Since I was attached to a wire, I could only access certain areas of the main room. Certainly not the kitchen. In my limited reach, I found no sharp objects, nothing with which to brandish a weapon, no way to reach the door or the windows. The bathroom, which my metal wire leash could barely reach, held nothing useful either. No mirror to break, no glass. I definitely didn't have enough line to reach the shower or bathtub, not that either would be much help. Mercifully, I could get to the toilet, though. I'd written a scene in a movie once where my character, a female assassin, used the heavy porcelain tank lid as a weapon, actually knocking her attacker out with a blow to the head. And I was more than willing to give it a try. But to my dismay, the crazy guy had removed it. Perhaps he had thought of everything. Or did he? Behind the toilet, only slightly out of view, was a cell phone. It was so hard to believe I almost didn't reach for it. It seemed too easy, I thought. Could it somehow be a trap? But why would my captor actually leave a phone? Had he wanted me to find it? And that was exactly it. Yes, he did leave it for me. And as soon as I inspected it more closely, I knew why. Of course, it had no service. But still, the battery was fully charged. I checked out the text messages and there were none. But there were photos. As I swiped the images, they hit me like a freight train, so hard and fast that I didn't know if I would ever catch my breath. It was the photos he wanted me to look at all along. There were images of women, all about my age, all wearing a long white dress, all sitting in the same room I was held captive in right now. Suddenly, there was that sound of the back door opening, that feeling of air coming into a vacuous space, it closed again, and I fumbled hurriedly to retape the phone behind the tank. I didn't want him to know I'd found it. But the idea that he'd meant for me to see those pictures gnawed at me. And the more I realized he was trying to frighten me, the angrier I became. I flushed the toilet for effect and walked out of the bathroom with a blank expression. He was standing in the doorway, smiling, holding a Whole Foods bag with a long baguette sticking out the top. I could tell he was trying to read me, trying to discern whether I'd found the phone, if he could trust me. 
And if it was one thing I wasn't going to do, it was telegraph my every thought and move and give him any more pleasure by holding me here. No, I can tell you that after I saw those photos, something switched in my brain. I was going to get out of that room. I was going to stop this guy. I didn't know how yet. But he'd picked on the wrong girl, the wrong writer. And at his creepy hands, my story was not going to end. My fade out wasn't going to be written in this apartment. Did you even read my script? I asked, suddenly curious about what I now deduce must have been a totally fake screenwriting contest. Or perhaps the contest was real, but my winning wasn't. But somehow he'd gotten my name and email information. Maybe he worked for the company or knew someone who did. My captor just smiled awkwardly. I knew it. He didn't read it. So the whole thing about me winning was all a lie, I said as more of a statement than a question. You may as well get used to it, he said. Hollywood is really one big lie. Everything about it is fake. I mulled on his comment for a little while, wondering oddly what had happened to him to make him so jaded. What's your name? I asked, suddenly feeling my mental pep talk, giving me a new hit of adrenaline and at the same time something I thought might be courage. I'd like to know what to name your character for when I write you into my next screenplay. My captor smiled. What do you want to call me? After all, you're the amazing writer. I'm not going to lie. The mocking way he used the word amazing only confirmed my speculation that he was the one who had sent the original email to me, the one that announced my script as a top five finalist. Of course, he was the contest organizer all along, and I was so gullible to think my story was good enough to win. All that was in the past now. It was literally not important. All I wanted was to get out of this room alive, to live. Whether I ever wrote another screenplay, let alone sold one, well, that was now rendered inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Frankly, it was good to be free of that desire. I was surprised at how liberated I felt. Okay, I said, thinking for a long moment. How about we call your character Nostromo? Suddenly the man gave me a long probing look and then laughed uproariously as if he'd heard the funniest joke in the world. He had to drop his market bag and hold the doorway to stay standing. Eventually he gathered himself together again. Nostromo was the name of a book by Joseph Conrad. Nostromo was also the spaceship and alien, he said. But while Conrad's Nostromo was respected by the wealthy Europeans of Sulaco, he would never be admitted to upper-class society. They saw him only as their useful tool. And I'm not a tool, he said in a way that I knew I had him thinking about things. Nostromo was an M-class star freighter owned by the Wayland yulani Company, I added, trying hard to walk around the bedroom as if I was actually comfortable in it. Yutani Company, he corrected sharply. Wayland yutani Company. You're right, I agreed, wondering how nerdy this guy must be to know this little bit of trivia. And I shuddered to arrive at the conclusion that his lack of a social life probably meant he had substantially more time to plan weird contest kidnapping operations like this one. 
but don't forget what happens to the Nostromo at the end. The man looked queerly at me then, and not in a good or interested way either. Apparently, this guy was a movie buff like me, and therefore would know that the Nostromo was destroyed in the end of the movie, set to detonate by Sigourney Weaver's character Ripley. I know, because I really love that movie so much I named my dog after her character. Why don't you just call me, he started to say, hesitating, maybe thinking on it, as he picked up his bag on the floor and walked out the doorway and down the hall toward the kitchen. His pregnant pause was killing me, though. Call you what? I yelled out. What's a good name for you? Hannibal, he said with a chuckle. Yes, why don't you just call me Hannibal? Chapter 5 Hannibal? What the? I had a feeling he was joking about this part, but the guy was a psychopath, so I took a hard swallow and pretended not to be alarmed. I hope that doesn't mean we're having fava beans and a good Chianti, I called out, not missing a beat. And another thing, I definitely don't eat organ meats. Truth told, I would have eaten fava beans and Chianti. But organ meats? There was no way. I wouldn't eat cow brains no matter how hungry I was. And let me tell you, after my cross-country flight, long drive, and chloroform slumber, I was famished. I'd like to tell you that I refused his dinner, that I spat on the floor or did something dramatically courageous. But it turned out he was a vegetarian, and he prepared a lovely fettuccine with homemade pesto, toasted garlic bread, and, well, the aromas of garlic and basil were far too intoxicating for me to turn down. And if you're starting to think he wasn't that bad because of his refusal to eat meat, well, think again. Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian, so drawing any direct links between diet and morality can be faulty logic, to say the least. He dragged a table into the bedroom and two chairs and then set the table, dressing it with plates, silverware, and wine glasses. But before he offered to serve anything, he handed me a box, one that was department store-sized. "'What's this?' I asked, taking it. "'It's a gift,' he said." Think of it as a dress rehearsal for the movie we're going to make tomorrow. A gift? I certainly didn't want anything from this guy. And the thought of what kind of movie he'd want to make? Well, my mind didn't even want to go there. Against my better judgment, I took the lid off the box and peeled away a thick layer of white tissue paper to find what was buried underneath. A long, white dress. You're going to have to be more creative, I said, holding it up with both hands. I recognized it right away as the same dress all of the women were wearing in the photos I'd found on the phone my captor left behind, the toilet tank. I think I surprised him with this comment, and it gave me a boost of confidence, which is something I desperately needed to ease the rapid thumping of my heart. Seeing this dress was making me freak out inside. But if it's one thing I'd read about serial killers, which I was starting to think this guy most certainly was, it's that they enjoy wielding control over their victims. And I had to get him to see me as something more than just his plaything. I had to take the joy out of this game and find a new one that was more interesting. 
especially one that required me to stay alive. If nothing else, I had to buy myself a little time so I could brainstorm my way out of this mess. What do you mean more creative? He asked curiously. I mean, your ideas are very derivative, don't you think? Frankly, it's sad. My captive, whom I refused to call Hannibal, by the way, gave me a queer look. Sad, he asked, as if he was genuinely confused when I knew he wasn't. His look of annoyance was subtle, but it was just enough to encourage me to continue. This dress, I said, holding it up in front of me. You ripped this idea from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we both know it. It looks like an Amazon version of the one that arrogant French archaeologist gave to Marion right before she tried to drink him under the table. My captor sat down and tried to look busy opening the bottle of wine he'd placed there, but I knew he was considering my words. I mean, look at my whole S&M contraption you've got me wearing here. Hooked up to a garage door opener? I was shouting now. We all know you got this from nine to five. It's what Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda used to imprison their nasty boss in his bedroom while they figured out what to do about their situation. He grabbed a glass and slowly filled it with wine. Then he did something surprising. He slid it over to the opposite side of the table. Does this mean you're not going to put it on? Well, my friend, you're holding a screenwriter hostage, for God's sakes, I replied. If we're going to turn this into a movie, I mean a good one, you're going to have to try a whole lot harder. Audience these days are more sophisticated, and they certainly don't want to see the same old crap. I walked over to the table and pulled out the chair placed opposite my captor. The wire to which I was attached pulled taut, but I had just enough slack to sit down and reach for the glass of wine. To my surprise, I took a good swallow, and then I held his gaze for a long moment. He filled his own glass with wine and never once took his eyes from me. What do you propose? he asked. I gently placed my glass on the table, and then I said something that surprised us both. Why don't you serve up some dinner, I said, and I'll tell you. Chapter 6 To my great relief, the man got up from the table and went to the kitchen. I listened to the sound of water being strained and a pot or two clattering while I racked my brain for an idea so great, a plot twist so intriguing, that he'd have to let me live longer than any of his other victims just to find out what happened in the end. Tell me about your script, he yelled from the other room. Oh, the one you didn't read? I yelled back a little too sharply. You have no idea how busy they keep me around here, cleaning and repairing things, he said more than a little bit defensively, confirming my guess that he worked at the apartment complex after all. I don't get much time for my own creative projects, but I will admit that I was a little bit intrigued by the title of your story. Chuman, I yelled out, just as he appeared suddenly at the table with a piping hot platter full of fettuccine doused in pesto. Yes, he said, since we're chatting, what is Chuman? What is a Chuman? I said, eyeing my plate as a gesture for him to start serving up our meal. 
and he did, using a fork and a spoon, twirling up the long strands like a skilled maitre d' in an Italian bistro. I surmise that he had had a few restaurant jobs in his past, too. Perhaps he and I weren't that different in some ways. A chuman is a cross between a human and a chimpanzee, I said, eagerly grabbing my fork and digging in. He served himself and then gently placed a napkin across his lap and sat down. Why not a human Z? he asked, and honestly, it was a fair question. I considered that, I said, but chuman just sounds creepier, don't you think? He raised one eyebrow and turned his head slightly to the right as if to acknowledge total agreement, and then he took another long sip of wine. I went down some very dark rabbit holes on the internet, I continued, grabbing for a toasty piece of garlic bread. I discovered that humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes and apes have 24, but they're still close enough to hypothetically interbreed. Well, at least in theory. Oh, that is truly disgusting, he said, as if he were any judge of acceptable moral lines that should or should not ever be crossed. But it's fascinating, too. I know, I agreed, shoving a big hunk of bread into my mouth. Weird ideas just come to me. It's a gift. It's kind of ingenious, he said, as he finally joined me in eating. I mean, if a tiger and a lion can produce a liger, or a horse and a donkey can make a mule, well, why not a human and a chimpanzee? Exactly, I said, mumbling my words because my mouth was full. Wait a minute, he said looking up with an expression I could only define as queer. Is Chuman a Bigfoot? Absolutely not, I snapped. It was hard not to be defensive, especially since I'm sort of a fan of Sasquatches. Bigfoot is not a sad, unethical crossbreed. Sasquatch isn't some genetic mistake, you know. American Indians say Bigfoot is interdimensional, my captor added thoughtfully. People who've seen them sometimes describe the experience as downright spiritual. I tend to agree. That explains how they're so elusive, no? You don't have to tell me that, I said, holding my fork up for extra emphasis. I've never implied that my chuman is a Bigfoot. It's not, okay? Okay. Anyway, I only brought it up because it's an example of how a simple what-if question can spawn a whole screenplay. You should read it. That's all I'm saying. I will now, he said. I definitely will. There was a moment of quiet while we both busied ourselves eating. I'm not going to lie. His fettuccine was more than delicious. I'd bet my captor had not only once supported himself as a waiter at an upscale Italian restaurant, but also as a cook, maybe even as a chef. Now, there's one thing I need to know for our screenplay, I suddenly asked. Yes. I'm honestly curious how you moved me from that nice apartment into this one without anyone noticing. Oh, you mean after I knocked you out with the chloroform? Yeah, I said, and we both know you stole that from Silence of the Lambs. My captor nodded again in agreement. I like to think of it as more of an homage, he smiled. But hiding you in the laundry cart was kind of a new spin, don't you think? You've, you've got to give me some points for creativity there. This time I was the one nodding. He went off on only a slight tangent to explain how the swanky apartment I thought I'd checked into was actually the model showroom for the apartment complex, 
which is why it was already furnished so nicely. As the property manager, he had access to every apartment in the complex, the master key, so it was easy to send me a copy, just like he had the passcode for the security box at the front gate. Now what about our movie? He finally asked, leaning back and bringing his fingers together in that annoying steeple formation that people tend to use when they're trying to look like they have their shit together and really don't. Let's get back to the question of our story. Let's, I agreed, dragging my garlic bread along my plate to soak up any residual pesto. I think we've already got the making of a storyline that's never been done before. So, what's our what if? He asked. Our what if is pretty obvious, I said, feeling my throat get a little dry at this point in our conversation. I swallowed hard, which brought me a few additional seconds to choose my words carefully. What if you let me go? I finally blurted out. What would need to happen in order that you would release me? Never going to work, he said, standing up suddenly and moving much too abruptly to my side of the table. My eyes grew wide, startled, until I realized he just wanted to fill up my glass, which had somehow become empty again. Why not? I asked. It's not believable. No one's going to buy that. You're right, I said. It's not. They won't. I took back the glass that he had just poured full. There's always what if I manage to escape, though. Or what if you give me all the beats of our new story before I kill you, he said matter-of-fact. Give me the ending, and I'll write the screenplay. Are you a writer? I asked, more than curious myself now. I'm more of a writer-director, he answered, taking his seat across from me again. But I like to think of myself as a director first, writer second, and I think that's what's hurt my career. Don't be too hard on yourself, I replied. You've probably just needed a writing partner. Maybe so, he said, pausing to think about what I was saying. Maybe so. We chatted for the rest of our meal about all sorts of things, about our past, our movie ideas, about how much money we'd spent taking screenwriting classes and entering all of these useless contests, and about how we'd each made sacrifices for what we both agreed was an obsessive dream to bring our stories to life. In talking, we'd realized how many things we'd given up over the years, including a few relationships, and yet neither of us was willing to be the least bit apologetic about any of it. I think we both felt we had no choice about our careers or lack thereof. We'd hold ourselves up to write, choosing this lonely, solitary, albeit creative, path, even if we didn't get paid for the effort. Not a dime. If there was any revelation to be had, it was that we couldn't change who we were. Only here he was killing people. That was a big difference between us, underscored mainly by the fact that the next person he still planned off was me. When my captor eventually got up to clear the table, leaving me to sit alone in silence, I gathered up my courage to call out to him with something I'd been wanting to ask all evening, but I hadn't found the right moment. You know that people will wonder where I am, I said. And when I don't come home on Monday, they'll come looking. Don't you think I've already thought of that, he said, walking down the hallway toward the kitchen. They'll eventually come looking for me here. I yelled. Well, at least at this complex. People know where I am. He didn't answer again right away. 
I could hear him in the kitchen loading the dishwasher, probably thinking everything through just as thoroughly as I was. That's why you better come up with a brilliant ending quickly, he said. You've got until sundown tomorrow, which is when I plan to direct our movie right here in that room. And by Monday, believe me, there'll be no trace that you were ever here. Chapter 7 You may think that his comment about getting rid of any trace of me by Monday would send shockwaves through my body, making me so frozen with fear that I wouldn't be able to come up with any ideas. But brainstorming is one of my superpowers, and while I'll admit to being more than rattled by his little offhanded comment, I could also tell my creativity was catalyzed in a big way. While he left me alone in that bedroom all night, still attached to that wire, of course. I didn't sleep one wink. I was awake, plotting, activating the full potential of my imagination, which, to be honest, wasn't very reassuring. I imagined every grim scenario of what he was planning for his movie, how he might try to kill me, and then I'd counter it in my mind with my own plan, which was always superior to his. But that's the thing about ideas. They are just ideas in your head until you put them into action. And by the next morning, I didn't have a great ending. I didn't have anything except one throbbing headache from all that wine and a life-threatening case of writer's block. To his credit, my captor brought me four things that next morning, which he said I'd find useful for working on our screenplay. He'd give me until early afternoon to come up with something, an activity he called my storyboarding time. He gave me a pen, some tape, and a stack of colored index cards, the exact kind I'd used before when working on my own screenplays. He told me that I could use them to write down plot points, character descriptions, and actually stick them on the wall of the bedroom, as if I'd never before heard of using index cards for that. Uh, I know what these are, I quipped sharply. Of course you do, he said in a tone that I could tell was equally annoyed. But they'll be helpful to me when I shape our story after you're literally out of the picture. Such a pathetic pun, I rolled my eyes. It was obvious this director was no writer. He needed me. But the last tool he brought me was far more surprising. It was a flat screen TV, maybe 42 inches at best. He set it up at the far end of the room by the door but still within reach of my wire, and explained that it was a privilege that he felt I had more than fairly earned by my good behavior the night before. He also admitted that he'd found it to be a useful tool for his own creativity, sparking many ideas, so he surmised it would help me as well. "'You want me to watch TV?' I asked incredulously. TV was anathema for writers. It was a diversion, a big time suck, that kept you away from being productive in your own writing, because it so easily lulled you into the dangerous deception that you weren't entertaining yourself, but instead seriously studying your craft. I definitely won't have time for that, I said. He looked more than annoyed. It's got Netflix, he added, and Hulu and Amazon, all the big apps are on there. Oh, a smart TV, I said, perking up just a little in tone, but still very sarcastic. Don't get excited, I've installed pretty strict parental controls. You won't be able to send a Gmail out if that's what you're thinking. But you can watch anything. 
In fact, he added, after our talk last night, I think you, more than anyone, will appreciate my Netflix cue. Suddenly, I heard a loud beep coming from the other room. He walked out and returned with a bag of freshly popped microwave popcorn. Here's breakfast, he said, throwing the hot, steamy bag sort of like a football pass across the room. I purposely didn't catch it and instead watched it land softly on the mattress. He just shrugged and walked over to hand me the black TV remote. See you in five hours, he said. Then he turned and left. I heard the second door to the apartment close behind him, which instantly made me let out a long sigh. I sat for a moment, trying to assess my situation as clearly and calmly as I could, and it summed up like this. I had about five hours to come up with not only a brilliant, heart-pounding, show-stopping ending, but also, more importantly, get out of this stupid room. No pressure there. I ripped open my bag of popcorn, cursing myself for burning my fingers as I did so. Then I grabbed the pen and index cards and sat down on the mattress. As I nervously shoved handfuls of popcorn into my mouth, I jotted down some notes. But still, that TV across the room was taunting me. I'll admit I was curious about my captor's cue. He obviously mentioned it because he wanted me to look. There was something he wanted me to see. Eventually, I couldn't resist it. I grabbed the remote, powered on the TV, and pressed the red Netflix button at the bottom. Then the Who's Watching screen popped up. Not surprisingly, there were only two user icons listed. One labeled Guest, of course, and I shuddered to think how many poor guests there were before me. And there was also an icon with the name, you guessed it, Hannibal. It was a little green smiley face. Ha ha, what a joker. I assumed he just added that this morning. I clicked on Hannibal's cue and scanned at the screen. There was the popular on Netflix film icons all listed across the very top. Then just below it was the trending now header with another list of movie icons. Finally, I found it the continue watching for Hannibal list. These were all the movies that Hannibal had recently watched. I scrolled across the screen. Boop, boop, boop. Silence of the Lambs was the first movie, explaining, of course, the specific methods of my initial abduction. Nine to Five was second, which I guess gave my captor the bright idea for my elaborate, if not comical, S&M restraint system. Third on the list was just as I had predicted, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thankfully, I never did put on that white dress like Marion was forced to wear in the movie. But the movie that was next on the queue stopped me cold. It was probably why my captor had dangled his queue like a breadcrumb. He wanted me to go looking for it. And if he wanted to send my heart racing double time, he sure did pick the right one. American Psycho. Boy, I hated that movie. Turned it off, in fact, when I realized how darkly terrifying it was. If my captor thought I was going to watch it now to gain some insights into his sick mind, he had another thing coming. This was not the movie ending I was going to write. I would not go there, even though he seemed hell-bent on it. I always loathed those torture movies, and I certainly didn't plan to be starring in one myself at the end of this day. In my horror, I wanted to snap off the TV right then and throw that remote across the room. But thankfully, I didn't. There was one more movie under the continue watching for Hannibal subhead that caught my attention. It was The Shawshank Redemption, 
starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. I had read the original short story, which was written by Stephen King, but the movie was written and directed by a guy named Frank Darabont, and I always remembered the online reports that he wrote the script in just eight weeks. It was a great story, in my opinion, one of the best movies that was based on an original work by Stephen King, and it was an inspiration for screenwriters, especially writer-directors, who needed help from a writer in the idea department. It was an interesting choice for Hannibal's cue, to save the least. And the fact that the movie was about a guy who breaks out of a high-security prison was even more intriguing. If you've seen the movie, and hello, spoiler alert coming, the Tim Robbins character escapes by digging his way out of his prison cell, wall, little by little every day. Quite ingeniously, the escape rope, which eventually grows big enough for a man to crawl through, is completely covered by a poster of a fur-clad Raquel Welch in the movie One Million Years B.C. I turned to my left and looked a little bit closer at the framed movie poster on the wall, the one that seemed to mock me the day before. No way out. It depicted a close-up shot of a woman kissing a much younger Kevin Costner with the tagline, Was it a crime of passion or an act of treason? I couldn't remember much of value about that movie, but right now what interested me most was whether my captor had hung it there to hide something. I strongly doubted it was an underground tunnel, but I walked excitedly over to it nonetheless, grabbed it by its edges, and when it didn't want to lift easily away, I ripped it clean off the wall. Chapter 8 While I'd like to tell you I found some sort of escape hatch behind that poster, I wasn't nearly so lucky. But something that happened at the exact same time did end up inspiring hours of writing, which is how I spent the rest of the afternoon. While the soundproof panels that covered all of the windows blocked every bit of sunlight, at some point I had a good sense that it was getting late. I was taping up the last of my story beat index cards when I heard the outer door slam shut. After what felt like a very long time, I finally heard footsteps approaching from down the hall. How did it go? My captor asked, entering the room with a camera tripod. He set it up by the door and then nodded with approval as he spied the 30 index cards I had taped all across the wall. Not bad, right? I said, hopeful. Just a minute, he said, and then he walked to the bathroom and came back with a phone I'd found the day before, hidden behind the toilet tank. The same phone with the horrible photos of women all wearing the same white dress on it. He lifted the phone up and I heard a soft click as he presumably took my picture. Then he set the phone sideways into a tray on the tripod stand. Pull up a chair, I said, more than a little disturbed by the photo taking and the fact that he planned to be filming me, but I pushed on anyway. I think you're really going to like this. Writers who have to pitch their stories to movie executives always say they were nervous their first time, but here I was, held captive against my will, tied up to a garage door opener, and having to pitch a storyline as if my life depended on it, because, well, it most certainly did. I started at the beginning, the part of the story that screenwriters call the ordinary world, and slowly led into my character's call to adventure, which was my winning the contest and getting invited out to Hollywood, never revealing to my audience that it was just a lure, a setup, 
by an ingenious psychopath. Yes, I call them ingenious. Psychopaths have very big egos. I know all this part, he said impatiently. Let's get to the good part. What do you call the good part, I asked. When does the main character realize that all is lost? That she's, well, doomed. He shouted in a way that startled me, so I jumped back a step. When does she lose faith and just give up? His harsh tone shook my body, but it was his words that felt as weighty as bricks because they were meant for both of us. Yes, he was talking to me, demanding a good answer, but if we were both being honest, we knew he was hoping I could help him make sense of his life, his choices, and why he wasn't able to succeed at the thing he thought it was his one reason for being why he reached out for that brass ring and it not only slipped through his fingers but sent him falling so far down that he landed with a dull thud holed up in a crappy apartment in Burbank, no less. I realized I wasn't the only one who felt held hostage here. I thought I might cry at that moment for many reasons, not the least of which was that giving up meant I was admitting defeat but also dying in this room. To me, losing faith meant so many things. How many times did I try to get an agent only to be turned down? How many times did I enter a screenwriting contest only to lose to stories that were only half as good? How many times did I try to break into this crazy business only to be looked over or outright turned away? And I had a good feeling that the crazy guy I was now facing had traveled down some similar roads. He'd never made it either. And even though I didn't know the exact details of his sad story, not that it would in any way excuse his actions now, I could guess he took every defeat to heart until he just cracked up altogether. I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for myself. I felt sorry for all of his other victims, whoever they were. I felt sorry for anyone who tried to make it and, well, didn't because it really, really sucks. There is nothing more demoralizing than a dream unrealized, I said. But I think it's important to remember why you're doing it in the first place. Why you ever had the dream. And it can't be because you wanted to make money. Then why do it? He asked. We do it to express ourselves, I said emphatically, to show through our stories the beauty of each soul's journey and to experience its transformation. I will write... Even if I never sell a single screenplay, I said, I will write until my dying day, even if I don't make a dime, and I will write until you kill me. But know this, I'm not going down without a fight. He considered this, was somehow even heartened by it, but then that same dark look came over him again. Well, does all this mean you couldn't come up with an ending? Oh no, I said, I've got one. And let's just say you would never have seen this one coming in a million years. Okay, he said, folding his arms unimpressed. But if it's as good as the ending in The Sixth Sense, I'll actually consider letting you go. Has any movie since The Sixth Sense had an ending better, I said? No. Well, you can be the judge, I said. Plus, I wouldn't take you at your word anyway. No offense. None taken, he smiled. Go on. 
And so I began with what I thought was an incredible ending. I told him how I'd went through his Netflix queue and got an idea inspired directly from the Shawshank Redemption. Well, sort of. I told him how I had ripped his No Way Out poster off the wall and never found a hole in the drywall or some other escape route through which I might kick my way to the outside or get a next-door neighbor's attention. I told him how I found the words he wrote there. Just give up was written in marker, a red sharpie. That's what my captor wanted me to find all along, his demoralizing message. Probably wanted me to feel as bad as he did about his whole sad life as if I needed to be chained up to know what it was like to have your dreams dashed, to never make it. Well, that doesn't sound anything like the ending of Shawshank Redemption, he said, taunting me. I didn't like the way his voice lifted up at the end, sort of like he was trying to stifle laughter. No, I said, but at the exact moment I saw those words on the wall, a white cat walked into this room here, just strolled right in like he lived here. And, my captor asked, a little frustrated, what does the cat have to do with the ending? He has a lot to do with it, I snapped, because he wasn't an indoor cat. He came from the outside. And then I remembered I'd noticed a cat door in one of the apartments facing the complex swimming pool. And, and I'm waiting for someone to find the note I tucked into his collar, I said. You wrote a note? Yeah, I said. I used the pen, index card, and tape that you left me. I wrote of my predicament and asked for help. Well, specifically for someone to call the police. Not bad, he said. But I really thought you were going to come up with something better. I mean... This is no Sixth Sense ending, not even close. You don't believe that a cat came in here, I asked. Oh, I believe you, he said, smiling. And then he pulled something out of his pocket that looked a little bit like the big joint I'd seen that couple smoking earlier. But when I realized what it was, my heart sank. It was an index card all rolled up, looking a lot like the one I'd tucked into the collar of the cat I'd found. It was an incredibly lucky development, being visited by this strange cat, and perhaps it was too unbelievable for an audience to accept as a major plot turn. But it did happen exactly as I said. Just then, the same cat walked into the bedroom once again and rubbed itself up against my captor's leg, softly purring. He bent down and picked it up, stroking its back. The cat arched happily as he did so. This cat lives in the complex, my captor said. When the previous tenant of my apartment moved out, they left it behind. And while I hate animals, this guy somehow still thinks this is his home. The cat belonged to my captor? I felt my heart sink so deep I thought I might never recover. My hopes were crushed. And then, as if things couldn't get any worse, he took something else out of his pocket, a knife, small but still sharp, and he held it up to the cat's face. You better give me a better ending, he said, looking at me. Or what I'm going to do to this cat, I'll do to you next. And that's when something amazing happened. I told my captor about my real ending, revealing that the note he found in the cat's collar was actually what screenwriters call a false ending. It's that moment in a movie where you think it's the end, but then bam, the story twists so hard that you feel like you've been knocked upside the head. 
It's a device most often used in horror movies. You think the creature's dead, and then it rises up one last time. Well, I let my captor think about what my surprising twist could possibly be. I took a running leap toward the guy, airborne, still attached to my wire, which allowed me to swing high sideways, almost matrix style, and I kicked him in the gut with two feet. Hard. The cat and thankfully the knife went flying. My captor buckled over in pain, but when he looked at me, I could tell he had lost all patience with my style of storytelling. It was at this moment that I knew unequivocally, that is, without any doubt, that this man was ready to end my story his way. The fade out was inevitable. Epilogue. The rest of the events that day were documented in great detail for quite a few news stories online and in the papers, but the best writing about the events came in the form of a screenplay, which I wrote just eight weeks later and sold a year to the day. It's a story I could say was based on actual events. The ending went like this. After I saved the cat, two police officers kicked down the front door. Behind them was a good-looking guy, the one I'd seen at the pool earlier, the one I just assumed was a writer. And I was right. He was. He was visiting a friend, and when he tried to connect to the Wi-Fi in his friend's apartment, he discovered that drop-down list of neighboring Wi-Fi routers in the complex. Most had generic names, but one of them had a name he found deeply disturbing. He was concerned enough about it to call the cops. Thankfully for me... They arrived at my captor's apartment, just in the nick of time. That's right. In addition to slipping the note into the cat's collar, I was able to use the remote for the smart TV to change its Wi-Fi router name. I've had to do this before at my own apartment, and I've often noticed the weird names that my neighbors give their routers. Lupe, Gemini 6, Infinity Stone. As a writer, it was a little detail that I tucked away in the back of my mind, until one day I thought, it may prove useful for a story. And it did. Many reporters asked how I gained access to my captor's Wi-Fi password, and I told them it was printed on the back of his router box, plain and simple, so it wasn't hard to give the router any name I wanted. And the name I chose? Help held hostage, apartment by hot tub, no joke. My captor ended up going to prison for a long time. It turned out that he had never actually killed anyone, those photos of the other women I'd seen on his phone were just out-of-work actresses that he'd paid to create his weird home movies on the weekends. Apparently, I was going to be his first. He insists that he was never going to kill me. But to tell you the truth, I'm still not sure. One good thing about prison, though, is you have lots of time to write. So my captor has been busy working on his own screenplay. Perhaps he'll get out and make it one day. He says he's open to partnering, but I told him that if he ever gets out, to not bother calling. He can, however, leave a message with my agent. Uh-huh.